you know, if the podcast had had eyes, um, I'm, I'm beaming right now uh, over over the last couple of weeks. Just just a wonderful time. Hey, everybody, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University sports podcast, where we talk about the business of sports. I'm Tom Richardson. I'm normally joined by my co-host, Joe Favorito, but there's a rumor that Joe is in Chicago and snagged a ticket to the Cubs game. So I'll be doing this one solo, but it's not really solo. It's kind of a, let's call it a different co-host, because today we've got someone who's familiar to this audience, I believe, quite well. Um, we've got Scott Rosner, most of you know as the academic director of the sports management program that sponsors the show, of course, at Columbia. Uh, and he's also a professor of professional practice. That's the official title. Scott, um, you are probably are uh, the, the guests with the most appearances. So welcome back <laughs> to, to build on that record today. Do, do I get a mug for that, Tom? Right <laughs> yeah, I'll return the one that I just got from you guys. Um, exactly. Anyway, always good to be with you, Scott. Thanks for spending some time with us. No, um, it's, it's absolutely my pleasure. And uh, I, I think I may have just seen uh, a shot of your co-host sitting in the bleachers at Wrigley without a shirt on drinking an old style, but we'll keep that. <laughs> oh, that's a good, now. that's a good image. Okay. <laughs> Let me move on from that. Um, Scott, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk about as we catch up on things happening at Columbia and in the industry. Let's start with this, uh, very happy time at Columbia, uh, in academia all over the country. Uh, and certainly within our program, which is the end of the academic year graduation last week and this week, uh, happy grads getting cool jobs. So let's start with that. Just tell us about uh, this year, your your thoughts on the back to in-person teaching that we started in the fall, continuing in the spring and all the stuff that happened over the last last few months leading up to this festive yeah, time. Yeah, and, and, and I think you're right. May is, is a very busy time for those who are, who are not aware uh, of kind of the academic calendars and, and how they work. Uh, but May's a really busy time for faculty. You know, you're finishing up a semester, you're giving exams, um, you know, grading papers, all those sorts of things that kind of come with the territory, but then you get the really celebratory moments. And for our program, uh, you know, not only the class of 22, but we're able to finally celebrate in person the classes of 2021 and, and 2020. Uh, and, you know, we had uh, the, the school-wide ceremony for the class of 22 last week, as you said, and, and, yeah, and the last couple of days for 20 and 21 uh, as we record this. And it was just, a, oh, it's hard to describe, Tom. It was really a wonderful time. It's been, a, it's, I'm kind of on a, I feel like I'm on a high a little bit for the last, the last couple of weeks. Um, seeing, you know, our students, the ones who graduated in 22, right, who just finished the program, are by and large the group that joined our program in September of 2020. Mm -hmm. And they put so much faith into our program, into our faculty, into the university during a time when the world was, was in a, as we all recall, in, a, in an extremely difficult position. And, you know, that they put their faith in, in us uh, and wrote it through and they get to walk. It, it was honestly like I get emotional at these kinds of things, watching them in general. And uh, but, you know, and, and we kind of do our Roger Goodell hug moment or we have our little, you know, dap out routine that I have with a few different students each year on stage as they walk across. But this one felt like it meant a little more. 
um, and only because I know what that group has been through and I know what they put into us and you know they're doing extraordinarily well which we can talk about from a job perspective um, but really that they made it through it with you know relatively unscathed right uh, and with with flying cars uh, and we were able to deliver them you know what we promised we would which was a world-class education um, you know albeit in, in a different modality than I think any of us would have hoped for uh, but it was it was really wonderful, and to see their families come back, and to meet some some families. We you know the one we, international students, so um, you know f folks whose families flew in from in no particular order, and I'm going to miss some, but but India, uh, Italy, uh, Colombia, Mexico, um, all over the world, students who flew back right from from Germany uh from from italy from the uk so on and so forth it was it was just wonderful um, and to see them and to be able to celebrate with them in the way that they deserve to be celebrated because that's the groups and finished in the spring of 20 when the world was shut down in the spring of 21 and and their graduation consisted of something like this like me on a zoom um you know offering them well wishes and delivering a you know uh delivering my version of a graduation speech um where they obviously deserve to much to be feted much much more than, than that um and so it was great the ceremony was terrific we were honored one of our one of our own so len elmore who i know has been a guest on this podcast uh was the graduation speaker um at uh at the event at the at the school-wide school professional studies event did a wonderful job uh unsurprisingly um and it was just it was the whole thing uh top was beginning to end top to bottom i'm like you know if the podcast had had eyes um i'm, I'm beaming right now uh over over the last couple of weeks just just a wonderful time yeah someone made an observation on twitter that it was really good uh, a new york city uh, person really good to, to see that image of young graduates walking around in their graduation outfits, taking pictures, uh, whether it's on the Columbia campus or down by NYU or Hunter, wherever. Uh, and that is something we haven't seen uh, at, at quite so nicely or, or completely in two years, obviously. So uh, I was on campus last week. I was not able to attend the graduation, but I did have my last class last week and it happened to be a really beautiful day. And it was that special time in the spring where finally the leaves are on the trees, the lawn's looking good, you know, and it's always ironic when you go to, as you did and I did, go to college or school uh, on, in the Northeast, how you literally get like a couple of weeks of good weather and then you got to leave. <laughs> you know? so I was actually taking pictures and sending them to various friends and like, check it. Yeah, this place is amazing. But it's my last time here for the next like four months. <laughs> well, it, it is. It's funny. And it becomes for the students. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm sure your experience at Hamilton was like this as well. Uh, it becomes the hardest time of the year to actually study. Yes. Because, you know, you're in Hamilton. I was in Ann Arbor for my undergraduate right. experience. You know, it's, it, the weather is beautiful. It's great after being, you know, cooped up in, in gray and cold and snow for, for months and months and months on end. And then it finally, the sun comes out and you actually have to study. You yeah. know, that's uh, yeah. And then when you're done studying, you get like one day to party and then, you know, there's a car to pick you up and you go, you go back home and like, OK, right. gee, that's too bad that we you, just you, wait a second. Time. You had a car to pick you up? An, an Uber. No. <laughs> no. I'm, re I'm referring to a family member who used to come retrieve me. I did not have. My ah, that's exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, but it's a really beautiful image and it and it and I think at a time 
in this world where there's just been so many issues and challenges in so many ways, both in terms of the public health, uh, the economy, et cetera, it, it just, it, it's really, it was really nice to see. I think everybody kind of needed it. As you said, we're kind of riding on a high off of it uh, right now, and hopefully uh, we'll have a good summer. Uh, Absolutely. On top Absolutely. Of it. So talk a little bit about, you referenced the jobs and the market right now. Let's talk about that. And, I, and I'm privy to some of this information from at least the students I'm in touch with. Talk about your thoughts on how the market embraced this graduating class, let's say compared to 2020 and 21, because obviously it was quite different in many different ways, but there've been really some great stories about some, some uh, fantastic jobs that our students have gotten. And while we may not want to talk about specifics because it's maybe not appropriate, but what, what are your thoughts generally about what you've observed? I got to tell you, Tom, our, our students, our grads and our current students, which is another topic that I'll get into in a moment, have done amazingly well in the job market. Um, you know, we're not at 100% employment yet, but we're not that far away from it. Um, and the folks, generally speaking, who are still looking to land something already have something that's more of our part-time students. Um, and they're kind of holding out for, for the best opportunity. Um, you know, they are, the opportunities they're getting um, to speak broadly about it or across a wide sector, across a wide variety of jobs in the industry. It's not just, we're not just pigeonholed into one or two different, uh, into one or two different sectors. It's, it's really pretty amazing. It's part of the focus of our program, right? We're, you know, we have a, we have a really broad uh, focus in our program, yet we also offer depth in, in a few, uh, in a few different areas. So students are getting jobs across the entire industry. Um, what we have seen is uh, those jobs are at a higher pay grade uh, than what we have seen historically. The sports industry is not caught up to like investment banking or consulting, um, you know, or, you know, or other, some other higher paying uh, sectors, but what historically has been a very low paying, uh, you know, entry level type job we've seen our students by and large go way beyond the entry level. Right. Um, and so, and that's, it speaks to the fact that they're, you know, not only they're very qualified, but they also have some experience prior in, in most cases prior to coming back uh, to Columbia, but even the ones who came right from their undergraduate undergraduate experience into our program are getting jobs. Uh, they're actually getting fairly well-paying jobs, especially for that level. Um, and so there's been a little bit of a correction, not entirely, and there's still many, many miles to go on this one. Um, but I think many different organizations have realized that they need to pay people. Um, I think the other part that factors into this would be naive if we weren't saying this, that during you know the, the so-called great resignation that occurred, a lot of people did leave the sports industry for other industries. Um, and so now there's some backfilling of those positions where people vacated. Um, so they're looking for really qualified people who are smart to come in, who will work hard. Um, and our students are, are doing that. So, uh, and, it's our, and our alums are doing that. So that's, uh, that's part of the story too. Um, you know, across, so where are they going? Um, you know, we've seen in our program, and this has been fairly well documented and talked about, so not divulging state secrets or anything, but, uh, you know, sports gambling has been uh, a space where, where many have, have opted 
to start their their sports focused career or to, or to migrate their careers into those spaces. Uh, digital media side, certainly, uh, as you well know from the courses that you teach, and you know they're taking what they learn directly in your class and, and applying it uh, in their in their jobs. Um, you know, we've seen some go into intercollegiate athletics. We will always see folks on the stick and ball side, uh, the traditional big four leagues. Um, but, you know, certainly that's that's been a piece of it. We've seen uh, NFTs, uh, you know, all the things that you talk about all the time, but that's where our students are going. Uh, we've had them go to, um, you know, to places, uh, competitor, you know, kind of the fangs. Um, that are looking to do OTTs or get get into OTT programming or get into sports programming without naming the companies, but there's probably a couple of them. Uh, you probably have a couple packages waiting from one of them uh, at your uh, you know at your door. Um, so you know it, it's it is uh, it's been amazing, and the salaries for some of these folks has been you know it's, it's been blowing me away, and especially in these these adjacent so called adjacent spaces. Uh, they're now infiltrating the, the sports industry in a very positive way. Yeah, Scott, it seems to me that one of the categories that statistically must be the highest one in terms of, of, of uh, employment sector within the sports industry is the agency side. Um, and it's funny because it's not as sexy necessarily because some of the names aren't as big and famous, but they're a big employer in this business. And I often in conversations I have with students will say if you if you haven't thought about the, the agency world writ large, think about it just, just to improve your odds because agencies are growing, as you know, it's a very important part of the ecosystem. And with the complicated nature of modern sponsorship, they're probably more important than they've ever been in the history of the sports business. So have you noticed that too? Oh, for sure. Um, yeah. And I think your observation is, is dead on. Uh, you know, we think, that for a lot of folks, uh, not only is it a great first, you know, foray into the sports industry and just a, a great way to get broad, a really broad perspective on some things, or if you're really narrow and tied to one, uh, you know, to one particular client that you can do a lot of different things with mm -hmm. that client. Exactly. It depends on who they are and who the agency is. Um, but it, it's, it's a great way to get additional exposure and to really learn. And, and we've had a consistent uh, kind of drumbeat of, of folks who have gone into uh, the agency space over the years. I, you know, I neglected to mention that only because it's not really new. Right. Um, it's just something that they, they keep doing. And there seems to be more and more agencies that are popping up mm -hmm. uh, as well. So, um, you know, it is, it's definitely a, a, a great place for, since we have faculty who teach in some of these agencies, right, mm -hmm. uh, as well. Uh, and so it, it's certainly a place that I, I would imagine would continue to have uh, a pretty firm presence on our list of employers and, and internships as well. Yeah, no, and it's good. I, I always remind everybody that starting out an agency as a first job or a second job is, is a really good way to get into the business because you do learn, as you pointed out, different kinds of things. You usually build a good network in an agency. You get exposed to different things you might not get in a more focused job. And you ultimately become a great candidate for an actual property if that's uh, an area you want to get into eventually, as opposed to let's getting right into the property, which statistically is hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so and it's interesting, you know, the other thing we've seen, Tom, in the job market, uh, which I, I quite frankly, I haven't seen before, um, 
is we have students who are getting full-time job offers while they still have remaining uh, time in our program. So, you know, we refer to that as, as turning pro early, right? right. Right. Um, you know, they're, they're getting jobs, they're, you know, they're getting jobs a semester, two semesters into their time in the program. Um, and fortunately, our program is designed to accommodate uh, students like that. You don't get, you know, the full array of classes because we do have some classes that are that are during the daytime hours. But the majority of our classes, as you know, are in that four o'clock, six o'clock uh, and even so in the 8 p.m. hour. So students are able to finish their degree. They have to slow down. Right. You know, we, they have to, you know, as the kids would say, they have to slow their roll a little bit. Right. Um, but they are able to keep working. Um, and they just basically transition from a full-time student to a part-time student so they can finish their degree. We, we, don't, we, don't, have, we don't have many who don't finish. Right. Um, in fact, I can't think of any right now, um, you know, who get the job and say, okay, I'm out. Um, but we do see them having to slow down. It creates an interesting, an, an interesting uh, set of circumstances for those students and for our program too, because we have models based on, you know, for how many classes we should offer and all those sorts of things. Um, and we've had enough of them that it's, we have to adjust the model a little bit for it. No, I'm reminded that every so often I'll, I'll reconnect with the student from a few years back. And I would have, I had assumed they had graduated. They're like, oh no, I'm still in the program. I'm like, what? I met you in 2018 or something like that. Yeah, how, how are they? haven't kicked yeah. you out yet, right? Uh, but no, I actually think it's a good way to do it, frankly, because you can then adjust your academic focus based on how your career is evolving. Yeah, um, and it's interesting. It's not, you know, we've always had like maybe a student who had that happened with, you know, or they got the job, you know, with remaining before they were done with the program with, you know, maybe a couple months left. But we're seeing it now, like, in numbers that we have never seen before. Yeah. Um, it's a great problem to have. Exactly. Uh, you know, yeah. we, we, we like that. The other thing that we've seen um, is a, you know, is, is those students who are thinking about like, do I, do I need to finish the program? Right? Like I have a job, like this is what I do. We, you know, we have to, and we have conversations with those students. And obviously there's a financial, um, you know, component to this. Um, and the students have all, like I said, finished the program, but it's an interesting conversation and one that we haven't had before. Like, look, you need to think about the entirety of your career, not just the first job, right. and that it's worth finishing and taking these two, three remaining classes, whatever it may be, um, you know, in order to position yourself for the next 40 years and not just the next like two or three years. Right. Scott, related to that is a question I wanted to ask about your planning as the leader of the program. What developments in the industry have you been observing, following that are having a direct influence on the way you build the curriculum? Yeah, it's, it's a terrific question, Tom. Um, and let uh, me be very clear that I, I do all of this hand in hand with LJ Holmgren, who is course, our deputy yeah. Shout uh, out to uh, academic director. <laughs> Um, you know, and it's, uh, it's funny, you know, it, it's like, you know, I'll come up with the, Hey, let's do this. And then she has to be the one to, to figure out how to actually do it in a way that's effective. <laughs> right. Um, it's like a CEO, COO yeah. kind of dynamic in, in yeah. the program. Um, and so, and, and be very clear that I, none of this would happen with, with, without, without her. Um, and so I'm, I'm internally grateful for, uh, uh, for the amazing work that, that she does. Um, and so uh, the, the things that we've seen, so we kind of have a model that we created that seems to be fairly effective. 
um, in evolving, getting our programming to one, make sure that we're still keeping up with everything going on, right? Like we're, we're very practical applied um, and our curriculum reflects that, right? I mean, what you're being taught in individual courses, um, you know, is constantly being refreshed. Um, it's constantly being updated. Uh, it's very unusual that two semesters in a row look alike, right? The principles are, are in many cases the same, right? Um, you know, accounting, the, our accounting class doesn't change a whole lot, right? From one semester to the next. Um, but most of the courses are, you know, fully bringing in, right? Whatever's happening in the world. And, and that's because our faculty are doing this, right? Um, you know, whether they're full-time faculty uh, or, you know, our, our large cohort of which you are, are you know, are, are one of our, of our adjuncts, you know, three dozen adjuncts or so. Um, and everyone who is, everyone who's teaching is heavily involved in, in the industry, right? Mm -hmm. So they're bringing that into the classroom. So, um, but the model that we've also created for new courses to be introduced, and we've introduced a handful of new classes into, um, you know, into the, uh, the, the, the program since I've been with it. And we've come up with this model for other things where we need to figure out what demand is actually like, but we know we should be teaching it, right? So, for example, uh, we have an eSports uh, course um, that is a workshop. Right. It's not a course. It's a workshop um, that we bring in Bryce Blum, who's terrific and well-known um, uh, esports executive and really at the cutting edge uh, of, of this. And he teaches a workshop for us for a couple of days uh, and looking forward to getting that back in person because it's had to be remote the last couple of years, uh, of course. Um, and we did. So we've evolved that and we're not far away from having an esports course. Right. We're probably a year away, maybe two from having a full esports course, right? Um, second, uh, same model for sports gambling, right? So sports gambling, where as I mentioned before, a lot of our students are getting jobs, uh, has, you know, we had uh, Sarah Slane. Uh, so again, well-known ex executive uh, who did a workshop for us last year, it's terrific. We'll evolve that and bring that back, you know, in, in this year and then we'll, we'll see where it goes, right? And, and that could be the next course, right? Um, so, uh, there's a lot of that. I, I get uh, a lot of calls, I, unsolicited emails uh, from folks who are interested in teaching. And, you know, there it's it's always kind of the, hey, we I think you're really, if I, if I know the person, like you're really qualified, but we have somebody, um, you know, in that space who's quite good, or it's an idea that it's just not for us. Right. It's not a bad idea. It's just not an idea for us. And that's always like, an, you know, the, that's that's you trying to, you know, trying to let uh, the, the person down a little easy, but understanding that that's not what we are. Right. right. And there's still this misunderstanding about what we actually are. You know, I, I got pitched something from a from a, uh, an individual who wanted to teach a sports medicine course. Mm -hmm. um, I'm like, well, that's that's great, but that's not what we do. Right. Um, you know, and uh, I'd be very interested personally in, in taking that. Uh, as as a failed pre med student, right from my undergrad <laughs> days, um, but but that's not what we do. Yeah, as long as you don't require organic chemistry to get through that class. Uh, forget organic. Tom, that would disqualify ninety nine percent of us. Inorganic in yeah. took or me down. Whatever, yeah, yeah. or any yeah. kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, for that matter. No, so that's interesting. So what about the? Um, let's take the specific example of business intelligence and analytics. I believe when you 
joined the program, what was that, 2017? 18, yeah. 18, okay. So I don't know if there were any uh, dedicated analytics classes at the time. Uh, so we had sports-specific classes. Um, okay. All oh, right, soccer mm -hmm. analytics, I remember that. So yeah. Soccer, basketball, and baseball. Okay. Um, and there was a, a, a more general course on uh, – uh, there were a couple of general courses, one a fundamentals class, uh, right. sports analytics, um, and the other was sports revenue strategies and, and analytics, uh, as it was known at the time. And so we brought in, um, you know, this was one, I was like, why, why aren't we doing this? Um, and so we have a business intelligence and uh, an applied business intelligence course uh, where, you know, we, we, Russell Scavetti, who's, um, I think has been a guest on this right. pod before as yeah, well. Fairly recently. Long yeah, exactly. And, along and with Charlie and, and Kyle, Russell, we, did, we did all three of them. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, and so Russell's terrific. And I said, you know, I remember sitting down with him, um, at, at the Sloan conference and I'd known Russell for years, like, you know, we turned into a couple of hours of like, Hey, you know, this is what I want and I want you to design it and teach it. Right. Um, and with, with the end goal being, when students come through the program, they're ready to hit the ground running, right? When it comes to uh, when it comes to the uh, that specific space, so uh, and that's worked really well. We have students getting jobs on and, and very good jobs uh, in that space as well. Right. So when you think about these particular areas of the business, like sports analytics, let's take facilities, which is kind of a world unto itself. Have you ever actually tracked, like in some sort of longitudinal study? the correlation between these classes and where people end up working? Oh yeah, of course. Um, yeah. You know, we, we know, um, you know, it, it's interesting. We, we know where people wind up and, and it's funny. Um, one of our, if not our best taught course, uh, but certainly one that's consistently at the very, very top of the list for us uh, is our facilities and events management class that Bill Squires teaches and has taught um, uh, at a very high level, and it keeps getting better. Uh, it's, it's kind of amazing. It's like Gretzky, right? He, he kind of keeps improving. <laughs> yeah, every, just building every on year. his records. Right. Like you think it's like at the height of his powers, and he keeps getting better. Um, and so Bill has taught that course for us since the beginning of the program, uh, well before I was uh, associated with it. And but we don't have many people. We have some, but we don't have many people who go into that space, which right. is interesting. All right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, but they have to know about it, right? Because many of them do wind up working at stadiums and they learn it um, from, from the best there is, right? In, in, in Bill, um, we have others where um, the, the course is part of our curriculum, but just the nature of a sports law class, right? Is that, you know, you have to go to law school and practice law uh, before you actually become a sports lawyer or the other way around. We do have attorneys who come to us um and, and looking for a career change and and that and then they wind up using that class and it's kind of the um you know one of the things that they do in, in evolving their their careers uh, and we do have students who go from our program and work for a year or two who then go on to law school uh they've been inspired by the sports law course uh that historically Carl Barreale Barker has taught uh, more recently we've also added Jennifer Duberstein mm -hmm. um from from CAA uh to that and Mark Conrad uh, who teaches uh, our international sports law course uh, as well. 
And so there's a there's you got a couple of different classes to pick from, and that inspires students. And so it actually was one of the things that that led me to go to law school. Um, you know, I really liked the sports law courses that I took when I was in a master's program in sports management, uh, and it convinced me that law school wouldn't be the dumbest thing I could ever do with my life. Um, you know, and, and it was like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. I like this, uh, and led me ultimately uh, after being encouraged by the professor to do so, uh, who taught me to to go and 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 go to law school. Nice. Um, so we went through this interesting time, the, the lockdown in spring of 20. Uh, we both affect, we and all the other teachers were affected by that, moving very quickly to Zoom. Fall of 20, spring of 21. Um, it, it, was a, it was a bit of a grind, but I think everybody adjusted pretty well. There was a lot of talk about teachers learning how to think differently about teaching their courses, obviously because of the online nature, the exclusive online nature for a while. What innovations did you see during that period or and beyond to come out of it? Because I think we all had to rethink how we're doing our classes and what kind of approaches work best. Some of us have taken seminars in this, as you know. Uh, I find it a fascinating discussion uh, at just to get better at what you do. What, what have you observed that is interesting to talk about right now in the way some innovations are coming to the classroom? That's a terrific question, Tom. So I, I think we start this with the, you know, with, with the, the statement that I think most folks would much rather be in person face to face mm -hmm. than, than remote. Right. Um, that said, uh, we have a couple of classes that we have actually evolved. We're, we're a brick and mortar program and you, you've got to be in New York and you've got to take the classes, um, you know, in person. But we have a couple we do have a couple of classes that for a combination of factors, um, location of the professor, uh, job change and their very strong performance despite that. Um, and their uh, the the specific course being very suitable to being taught in a remote setting, right? It's being an mm -hmm. online setting. Mm -hmm. So specific our, our applied business intelligence course, um, where most of the time in the classroom, the faculty members walking around, the, looking over the shoulders of the screens of the students now can just take it over and share a screen. Uh, and the same thing with our soccer analytics course, right? So mm -hmm. uh, those both were, have proven to work very well in, in an online setting. That said, the other pieces of it. So, what are what are the takeaways and things we've incorporated? First, program why, um, you know, we've got something that, that you, quite frankly, are responsible for and, and propose, which is the idea that you have a Zoom call uh, with every student in every one of your classes during the first few weeks of the semester. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's made a really big difference uh, for all of our students. So, if you think about it, so if you're listening to this uh, and you're wondering what is he talking about, every one of our students has a call. Uh, a Zoom call in the first couple of weeks of the semester with every one of their faculty members. It's a half hour call or so um, just to get to know them a little bit better. And it is made, it started with, and this again, you know, uh, your, your, your host's uh, idea here, it, it started by just making it more comfortable for them to talk and getting to know them a little bit. And now it's the same thing, but in in person. So you really hit the ground running when you talk to the students. It's not intros on the first day right. or anything else. You, you already know them. Um, so that's from the very beginning. That's that's one. Um, and we started that in the I believe it was the summer of 
It was the summer of it was the summer time. Remember having this conversation with yeah, you right, late July of twenty about planning the fall semester, and yeah. I, I said kind of casually, "It's like, well, I think I'm going to set up Zoom with all my students." You're like, "Oh, that's an interesting idea," and then we talk more about it. And yeah, yeah I, I agree with you. It's really it's really a good. Thing. So and we, and we've maintained that. So if you're listening, yeah. so every one of our classes, even though we're back to uh, relative normal now and face to face instruction, uh, that that's 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 still the case. Uh, and I'll be doing mine, you know, in the next week, you know, for the yeah, summer. For the summer right, right. Right. Uh, coming up. So uh, the, the second is uh, from a guest speaker perspective. Um, you know, we're fortunate because we're in New York um, and we've always had, had, you know, tremendous access to right. folks. Um, but it does make it easier to bring people in remotely. Uh, there's there's no question. And so, um, you know, we get more high level people. Uh, to come in because they can't drop everything and come to campus, especially if they're out of town, of course. Um, so that certainly helps uh, on, on that front. We've learned how to incorporate that without overdoing it. Um, you know, I think the other pieces just are the, um, you know, the the interactions with students. I think we've all gotten accustomed to. Uh, so in, in our program, um, you know, everyone's face to face except for the couple of classes that I mentioned. But we did have a rule this year that if you were if you were sick for if you had COVID related illness that you could join a course remotely, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's you know a little bit difficult to police and you know who has a COVID related illness and then there's some slippery some slippery slope that gets into well I have a wedding out of town or I have an interview or something job related and you know the line drawing that comes along with that uh, is something that I think every one of our faculty you know had to had to figure out that that part of it, but. Um, that you can do both, that you can be kind of on stage, um, in, in other words, in front of the class, but also on screen, um, you know, to anyone who's remote at the same time. Um, and so we have figured that out pretty well. Um, and there are things that we, you know, to that end and that have stayed. I think the way to engage students, and it was interesting, Tom, our students by and large, now there are some exceptions to this, of course, but maintained a very high level of engagement online um during you know during their their time uh in the program uh that was spent online and some of that was because you know we had kind of put in this mandatory not always enforced i should note but mandatory camera on uh policy right, right. um you know i was i had coffee with a uh, a colleague uh a week or two ago uh who teaches sports management at, at another school um and you know longtime friend uh type thing who had a very different experience with their students um, and that it was almost like, you know, they were like glossed over mm -hmm. sitting in front of a screen. And I referred to it as almost like, you know, in a way it's like this element, not to go too deep into it and, and to minimize what I'll talk about, but the element of PTSD, right? They've just yeah. been through so much, yeah. you know, you used to hear about like the 50 yard stare, you know, from, from, from folks it was almost like they had this 50 yard stare and, and which is a horrible thing to think about and hear about. Um, I, I didn't see, I, I don't, maybe I didn't see it and it was happening, but I didn't see a lot of it, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, with our students. And I think that's a tribute to our faculty, um, you know, who really found ways in their own, in some of their own unique ways to keep students engaged. Yeah, yeah that's, it's a tough one with the Zoom, Scott. I, I know of some other situations where video on is not required at other schools. And I think that's insane personally. Um, so I, I did an event for Hamilton a, a couple months ago, a career thing, and it was on Zoom. 
And when it started, there were about 30 people and I'd say 26 or seven of them were uh, not on video. Mm -hmm. And and the, the host said, okay, Tom, we're ready to start. And I said, I'm not, <laughs> I said, I, and I just, I didn't even, couldn't even see people I'm talking to. I said, hey, everybody who's on, I really appreciate you joining, but I gotta ask, I'd really appreciate you putting on the video. I said, I've been teaching for a long time. I've done a lot of Zoom classes and I can tell you, it's just not the same when you're not engaged uh, visually. So I'd really appreciate it. And guess what? Pop, all the boxes came on. Yeah. And I and said it in a nice great. way. And um, anyway, I, I agree with you on that. But it, it's it's tough sometimes because you don't know what the circumstances are with each person, obviously. Yeah, yeah you don't know where they, they are. You want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt from an empathy standpoint. So, um, okay. So... You, you mentioned a couple of things, but I know there was one other thing we, you had mentioned in our pre-chat uh, about supervised research projects. Can you mention that? Because I know it's become an important thing in the program. Yeah, so we have, uh, it's actually fulfills a graduation requirement that could be fill, fulfilled in, in a few different ways, whether it's an independent study or doing an internship. Um, and increasingly, more and more students are choosing the supervised re uh, research project, which is really um, our version of a consulting project. Mm -hmm. And so we have a number of different partners who we work with on these. And so from, from multiple projects with the NFL uh, to FC Bayern, uh, we have a new partnership with USOPP um, that, uh, that we're, we're, we've worked with in the past, but now it's formalized uh, in, a, in a partnership that'll take us through the LA 28 games. Um, and where we bring we are, they are the client, we are the consultants, um, and under the direction of a faculty member, um, we, uh, we, we, we do a project for it. Now, we do this in other classes, too. Michael Newman teaches a fantastic course on sports sponsorship and sales, um, where his clients over the years have been, uh, have ranged from, from NASCAR uh, to, major, to, uh, uh, to the New York Islanders, um, you know, and this year, uh, what the WNBA. Uh, was the client. So the entire course is built around a project. It's not designated as a supervised research project, but it, it's it's very similar to one in a lot of ways. And so, you know, the deliverable is, um, you know, a, a, typically a presentation um, with, you know, in some cases associated, um, you know, a, a bigger associated deliverable, uh, the research that we do, for example, for the NFL, uh, on their on their social justice uh, piece, which we've done for the last four years, um, you know, something that winds up at the highest levels of the NFL offices, right? Um, so it's not just a presentation to their leadership in the front on that space. Uh, it winds up at the very very highest levels of the organization, right? So, um, so and those are a really important part. I think practical applied knowledge. Our students actually get jobs out of these things, mm -hmm. um, you know, for when there's an opening and there's you know. Um, uh, and an opportunity, uh, and they do a good job, which in, invariably they do. Um, it, it creates another opportunity for them to get in front of potential employers um, and, and kind of show their stuff. Uh, but it's becoming increasingly a much more featured part uh, of, of, our, uh, of our program. We have one this summer. Uh, we have a couple this summer. One is new with the Orlando Magic. Uh, it's a, a project focused on, on DEI. Um, and so we are, uh, and the head of their DI is a, is a gentleman named A. Sumat, who's an alum of our program, um, and is actually leading uh, the uh, is leading the project. 
uh, on their behalf, um, and we have faculty on our, uh, he's leading the project on our behalf uh, with the magic. And so um, uh, it's, it's, it, works, it works really well. And I think the other things that we've seen in terms of curricular innovations, um, you know, and this got a huge, huge uh, round of applause and was extremely well received when we told our, uh, our graduating students and our alumni of our two new graduation requirements that we're putting in place uh, for all students who start in, as of this fall, uh, which is one, uh, there's a professional development requirement um, that's gonna require full-time students at the start of the program to do 40 hours, part-time students 20 hours um, of professional development work, which is a lot of the things that we do, the co-curricular things that we do in our program mm -hmm. uh, from cultural competency programs uh, to race and sports workshop, um, to uh, even participating in some of the orientation and some of the other fun things that we do. Um, so that's part one, that's one. And the other new requirement um, is a, what we're, what we're calling the CLASP requirement because everything has to have an acronym, but it's the community leadership and service program. Every student coming in full-time 40, part-time 20 hours of community service with a sports related nonprofit um, during their time in the program in order to graduate. Um, and so, um, and it's not going to be, it's great when people are on the fields and working with the kids, but we want our students um, to fulfill this requirement uh, by putting their, what they're learning to work. So this is going to be behind the scenes uh, for all these different sports-focused nonprofits. Jackie Bartolomeo uh, is leading that for us. Um, Jennifer Dick, who has been an alum of the program, and as is Jackie, uh, is going to lead uh, the professional development part of it. So we're That's really great. excited about that. I think it's a great thing for our students. I'm sure there'll be, the, you know, it won't be perfect when we launch it. We've launched it in beta uh, and we got through that pretty well, learned a lot. Um, but uh, I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll, we won't be perfect from the start, but it's the right thing to do. Um, and uh, really looking forward to, uh, to putting that in place starting in the fall. Wow. Well, hey, congrats on all the achievements, the way you've been building and expanding and iterating on the program. It's really impressive. So good for you. Well, thanks. I, we haven't achieved anything yet. We're just, you know, we're, well, you know, we're, we're yeah. trying to do, to, do, to do different stuff with uh, and continually evolve the program. But I, I appreciate you saying No, that. you're very thoughtful about it. And, and I don't think a lot of people who haven't worked in academia appreciate how much work goes on behind the scenes to actually think about how you evolve a program in a very tumultuous time, uh, not just uh, societally, but in this business proper that we're, we find ourselves in of sports. I mean, speaking of which, for our last few minutes, um, yeah. and this could be a, a separate podcast, Scott, but I would, I have to ask you about, we have to talk a little shop about the biz. Um, we're approaching the one year anniversary of NIL. We cannot get through a day in the sports business about reading of, about all the issues with collegiate athletics and the troubled NCAA, Mark Emmert leaving, the list goes on and on of things to discuss. So again, this could be a longer conversation. Maybe we'll have that as, as a follow-up soon, but just some, just some thoughts on NIL and how that's impacting the way the NCAA tries to find its, its next iteration of the organization. Yeah, th this is the conversation I'm having more <laughs> than any other and, and have been for the last couple of months, both with people inside the industry and those outside who are yeah, fans. Yeah, for sure. Right? Absolutely. We want to talk about this and, you know, that it'll somehow, this is somehow going to lead to the demise of Western civilization as we know it, right? <laughs> um, exactly. So it's not quite that dramatic, 
in my mind. But look, this in some ways, this is a, a problem of the NCAA's own doing, right? Um, and by, you know, by fighting against it for so long, um, and then, you know, perhaps foolishly challenging it, um, or allowing it to be challenged all the way up to the Supreme Court, um, you know, and then losing nine zero, right? It's a good old fashioned whooping, right? Yeah. Which doesn't um, happen very often these days. <laughs> it, does, it does not. It does not. Right. Um, you know, unanimity is is uh, uh, not as common as it used to be. Right. So, uh, but that said, it now has put the NCAA. They're they're chasing, right? right. Um, and they're 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 trying to play catch up in a, in a landscape right now where and co- coaches are complaining about this. Everyone in the landscape is complaining about it. Um, you know, kind of the wild west analogies that you hear thrown out there. And, you know, I, I think that from uh, the short term perspective, I think it's wonderful from the perspective of many of the student athletes, um, not, not the easiest thing to monetize. And we know the numbers that students are getting uh, on average are, are relatively small, but there's some big numbers that are hard to ignore. Um, it's also really changed in combination with the changes to the one time transfer um, or the, the creation of the one-time transfer exception uh, and that is now applied, had been around for a long time, but is now applied in, in basketball and, and football. Um, the combination of the two, right, has meant that like signing day when these kids are in high school is really just like, okay, well, this is where you're going for your first year of college. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so, you know, that creates a lot of issues. What I'm really concerned about, and I have a piece coming out next week, um, early plug uh, in Sportico about it um, is the impact that I think this could have on, on graduation rates where we've seen a steady improvement over the years um, in graduation rates across demographics. Um, but, you know, now like when you transfer the, the, the grad rates for transfer for transfers, I'm not, not, I'm not talking from, from a two year school to a four year school, right? What we call the two to four, I'm talking about a four to four. So you're graduating, going from one, you're, 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 you're changing your four year school, mm-hmm. right? Which is what is getting all the attention. Um, we already know it's really hard to graduate. If you've ever just transferred schools, there's a Are lot you of talking things. about athletes specifically uh, in general, general, in general, when you okay. transfer a school, the graduation rate tends to be lower, right? Okay. Because there's credits that don't transfer and it's a new landscape uh, for you to navigate just as a, as what we call a NARC, right? A non-athletic regular person, right? right. Um, you know, as a student athlete, you compound that, right? And so uh, the, I'm, I'm quite worried about what the graduation rates are going to be going forward. You know, there's a big difference over the lifetime earnings between uh, someone who graduates from uh, from college and someone who attends college. It's about a 70% wage differential, right? Mm-hmm. Um, between the two. So I'm worried about that. And I'm, I'm, so when I think about this is a great short-term decision, if you're chasing dollars, right. And you can get paid a lot of money for switching schools. Good for you. Right. And if it's truly, if you're truly going to be one of the few who is pre-professional, not just in your mind, right. But ultimately is able to realize that, right. And become a professional athlete, especially in those two sports, good for you. But there are so many others, of course, the vast majority will not play professional ball. Um, and so I worry about degree completion um, in, in particular on that front. And I think that has not been discussed a whole lot. And that's really the whole purpose of this whole thing, right? Okay. Uh, that we call it intercollegiate athletics. So I'm worried about that, but in terms of the landscape and where it's evolved, we're at very early stages. The market will have to find its equilibrium at some point. We've already seen brands get stuck with really bad deals with athletes. 
Um, and I think that will continue to be the case. I think you will start to see some brands uh, pull back a bit in this. But the collective piece, you know, with the NCAA has recently just come down on, um, you know, this is going to be the subject of litigation going forward. And this is not going to be settled for, for quite a while, in, in my opinion. All right. Here's a little bit of a curveball question. What, what if you took over Mark Emmert's job starting next week? What would you do first? I don't know if I want that job. Uh, <laughs> that's, I think to, that's the right answer. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> to, to, to begin with. Um, right. You know, it, it's not an enviable position to be put into, right? Yeah. Um, and I think the criticisms of Emmert have been, you know, duly noted, right? No, no question about that. Uh, and in many cases deserved, in other cases, eh, you know, kind of uh, an easy mark, right? right? Um, but, gosh, the first thing I would do, um, you know, I, I, I think that uh, in, in a way, like, are you ready to, to really proceed with the line that you've drawn in the sand over what's acceptable uh, and what is not from an NIL yeah. perspective? I was going to say, so uh, how, how about just some basic guidelines, which they never provided? That would yeah, well, that's exactly right. So, and we started to see yeah. some of that, but, but I think that, you know, that's the first thing, you know, look, I mean, you know, I, I don't know how you can do that job with, without the, 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 the real focus on student athlete health and safety and well-being. Um, there's no question about that. Um, I, I think the organization has been very slow and, and appropriately called out uh, on the gender equity uh, pieces of, of, uh, you know, the, of the mission that they have failed. They've tried, I think in some cases, but they've failed, um, miserably against Remember when title nine was passed, this is a long time ago, right? So we're about to celebrate the 50th anniversary of title nine, but the NCAA lobbied against the passage of the of title nine. Right. Uh, and very early on looked for things like a football exclusion, um, you know, look to have sports even exempted from, from application of, of Title IX. You know, there was a lot of stuff. That, this wasn't always like, you know, let's embrace this. Remember, the AIAW was still the dominant force in, 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 in women's collegiate athletics to the early 80s, right? So, you know, let's not pretend that this has always been about, you know, about the, the, the best, uh, getting the best outcomes and, and get, giving female student athletes what they deserve. Um, so I think I would, I would certainly, you know, come down and, and mandate some things there, but remember, and again, so this is why Emmerich gets clobbered. A lot of people have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the NCAA is. Uh, the NCAA is really, you know, as an entity is nothing more than its collection of, of institutions across divisions one, two, and three, right. Uh, and other places too. Um, uh, so very, very hard thing to a uh, very hard ship to steer. Um, the national office of which ever, you know, in, in Indianapolis gets criticized. And a lot of that's rightfully so because of policy interpretations that have been given over time um, and the way that the rules have been seemingly, you know, uh, or at least allegedly, um, you know, handed out in uneven, uneven fashion over time. So uh, I would try to try to address that as well. Uh, but man, like I said, I don't know if I would touch that job. I was going to say, Scott, I, I thought part of your answer was going to be I'd hire a really good general counsel and a really good head of PR. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, I think that comes with the territory, too, right? I mean, PR, I mean, that is a monumentally challenging PR job. Um, the sports lawyers, you know, I know who I would hire right. uh, on that front. And, and I, I would probably bring in Joe and his 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 folks on the PR side, too. Right. right? Yeah. You need best in class on this one. But it's, 
you're so far behind, right? I know. Then how do you catch up? And, and really some of it too, Tom, I mean, you know, I wonder, and just thinking out loud uh, about it, but whether or not the best solution is a full stop fade to black, let's start over. Yeah, yeah. I, I think a lot of a lot of strategists would agree with you. I mean, that's a hard thing to do, of course, for any large organization. But it's interesting, Scott, because I know um, one of the big topics in tech, kind of the narrative that goes around big tech and some of the challenges they face with potential regulations and things like that. And sometimes the likability factor of the CEO factors in. So oftentimes Tim Cook, the more likable guy ostensibly, is contrasted with Mark Zuckerberg, a less likable guy for, for different reasons. And it's mm -hmm. partly just personality and style. Um, but a lot of the experts and insiders will note that many people, critics, uh, analysts, et cetera, will give Apple kind of less grief because Tim Cook is more likable than Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg, let's say. And that it feels like Emmert found himself in the Zuckerberg camp of like <laughs> likability, again, for different reasons. So I don't think he, I don't think he did himself any favors. And I, I know that like you and I have learned this in this business, there's such a, an important um, component in the mix, which is public relations, which is yeah, a subtle you know, nuanced thing. And I just feel like is. they've been really bad at it these last few years. It is, and it's a, it's a fair point about Emmert and likability, but I, I wonder like even just going back over time and thinking about the different folks who have, who have led the NCAA, um, you know, I, I don't know if, I mean, Miles Brand certainly wasn't immune. Um, right. You know, the, the late Miles Brand certainly wasn't immune to this. Said Dempsey certainly was not immune to it when he was that, you know, Schultz was not immune to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think it, right, even, even going all the way back in time, right, uh, to the very beginning, um, I, I, don't, I don't think that, the personality, I think it matters, but I don't think it matters as much in this instance. I think it's more the overall institution. Yeah. The NCAA, right. Yeah. right. Um, that, you know, has, uh, uh, that has led to, you know, that led to the place where we are now. And, and, and I think the other thing about it, you know, too, like, you know, NCAA, the collection of presidents who control the NCAA, which has been now the, the part of the landscape for, you know, 25, 30 years, um, since the restructuring, a big restructuring that occurred, the NCAA is a president-controlled institution, right, organization. And so university presidents may not be the ones who are best suited to win that PR battle, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's just not necessarily part right. of the job description of being a university president. It's part of it because you have to fundraise and all the things right. that come with being a university president. Uh, but, you know, Emmert led the University of Washington was his job, you know, as the president or chancellor of the University of Washington before he became the head of the NCAA, right? Right. Um, I just don't know, A, if it's if it fits from a job description perspective, and B, if it really matters at this point. Yeah. I, it's just, it's an interesting topic. As I get it's older, a fair thing to think I, about. I, sure. Just as I get older, as an observer of business and having worked in all different companies with different leaders, I, I realize, or I'm coming to the conclusion as I get older that the image and style and vibe that the leader projects is just really important for a company. So, I mean, we're witnessing this right now with Disney. Where yeah. People love Bob yeah, Iger 
and they now they don't like Bob Chapek. And Disney is paying a little bit of a price for that. Now, has he made some missteps? Probably. Yes, most would agree. Yeah. Um, but as companies have been dragged into some of the culture wars and controversies, as we've seen Disney being a great example in Florida, where they're kind of up against uh, a governor uh, who uh, d disagrees with many things that uh, they espouse, um, it's really interesting to watch. And if Iger theoretically had still been CEO, would this have gotten to this? Would that controversy have gotten to this point? Maybe not. A lot of people seem to think not. Um, and it's partly yeah. just the knack of a leader to kind of feel to suss stuff out before it gets bad. And my sense in the NCAA, and by the way, I've never met Mark Emmert, nothing against him. I never felt like they were one step behind any time they needed to be one step ahead on a lot of these issues. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, with that statement for sure. Um, you know, I was having a conversation with someone to, to the point that you're making uh, about the commissioners of the big four leagues, right. Yeah, um, in, in the same way. And a lot of the criticism that is thrown out at those folks is just, you know, it, it's that I would say is more based on, on likability yes. um, yeah. than anything else. But, um, you know, is there a commit, you know, is Roger Goodell ever going to please everybody? Of course not. Right. You can't try to please everybody. Right. Uh, is, you know, the commissioner of baseball, like what was the last beloved commissioner of baseball, Bart Giamatti, right? Um, you know, who was who, who lasted great. for how long? Or lasted for how long? His right. Well, he, he died in office. Yeah. Well, right? I know, but the, it was the, a very the, short the, tenure. The late great. Yeah. You know, and so I think some of that just you know comes with the territory. You know, yeah. as, as yeah. Fair enough. you know, it's almost like as Taylor Swift, who spoke at another graduation uh, downtown this week, once said, "Right, the haters going to hate." Right. Um, and so uh, you know, I think that part of it. Uh, some of it just comes with the territory, Tom. Yeah, okay. I, I'll just make one last point. And that is, if, if you look at a guy like Adam Silver, who is universally acknowledged as a nice guy. No, he's a mensch. He's, and like, every, he's a mensch. Everybody, everybody's yeah. ever met him. I've had the uh, fortunate, good fortune of meeting him a couple of times. You can just sense it, even in, in a 30-second interaction. And I think that kind of intangible thing just sort of comes out kind of in the ether that people get, you know what I mean? Like just without even thinking about it. And um, it's just an interesting thing because it feels like right now CEOs, uh, and obviously we've seen this with the NCAA and Mark, are everything is so public, everything is so dissected, so analyzed, so criticized. You just have to have this really good knack for staying on top of it, managing that as a really important part of the job, whether you like to do that or not. Because it just um, it creates a certain uh, I could air cover for everything else you need to do. I would I would suggest. Yeah, I mean it doesn't hurt to me. It never hurts to be nice, right? Yeah. Um, you know, and and I think that the old Leo DeRocher nice guys finish last kind of thing right. Uh, right. at least attributed to him. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily true, and I think it can buy you some goodwill with the media in particular. Right. Um, you know, let's be let's be very clear about that. Um, you, you know, but there have been. Uh, you know, there's there's folks who are just not, you know, commissioners, CEOs, whatever the job you're thinking about, who are just not comfortable in the media. I know. It, yeah, it, that's part of it. Right. And then it wasn't necessarily as big an issue, I would argue, pre-digital media. I agree. I completely yeah. agree with that. And right. so you, it's part of the job now that you and Adam has embraced that. Right. right? I mean, Absolutely. I think he's done yeah. a pretty good job as much as you could embrace it. And in a way that, you know, a 50-ish year old male embraces it, which of course largely through Facebook and, and then, right. you know, uh, the other platforms flow from there. Um, 
but yeah, and he's an approachable guy. He's a man. She is, he is genuinely, my experience with him has always been, he's been very, yeah. very nice. Um, and while the other uh, commissioners may indeed be really good people, and, and in fact, they, I, I think they are, right? Um, you know, and my experiences with all of them have always been, has been, have been very positive. The, the public perception of them is, is sometimes different. And that's, yeah. and that's yeah. again, um, I think that's a, a, an astute observation. Yeah, one last coda um, uh, to, to reference something. You initiated at Columbia when you brought in uh, Brian Pullian to speak to the faculty last year. And uh, that, that really was eye-opening to me. I really enjoyed that. And, and Joe and I were lucky enough to have Brian on the show a few months ago. Um, and that, that is just uh, that idea of managing Gen Z, of coaches behaving differently, of leaders behaving differently, because they have to. It's a different mindset of young people. Uh, and we were laughing in that pod discussion, Scott, I don't know if you got to listen to it, where we were reminiscing about the football coaches that some of us grew up with in the 70s. And it was brutal. Like, the more abusive, the better. Like, that was the whole approach of football coaching. <laughs> I mean, to, I mean, the whole, like, water makes you weak, right? Uh, Scott, we were denied water breaks when we were doing double, triple sessions when I was in uh, junior high and high school. Is that, on, is that amazing? Um, Pop Warner and high school football. They would literally deny us water as punishment for missing a play or something like yeah. that. I mean, it was looking back on it. It was the exact opposite of what Brian was talking about. Yeah. They didn't. They didn't care about our opinions. They didn't care about our uh, our feelings, anything like that. But then again, it was a different era. Uh, it, was and a, now, it was a different era. So, but, and and it's yeah. a death. We have to. I mean, part of being a good leader, right. whether you're a coach or the CEO, um, you know, or the commissioner or the head of a program, you know, an academic program, whatever it is. You have to be able to adapt over time. Um, exactly. And, and I think just have that, especially if you're around a lot of younger people with that different mindset, um, it's just so critical. And you can see we're kind of witnessing this real time right now. Any of the old school leaders, Mark Emmer being an example, are, are you know, fading, stage, fading out stage left, you know, in their career careers as leaders just that's the way it's going to happen yep. and the next generational step up anyway we can go on and on uh but uh, you've been generous with your time it's been an hour um scott on behalf of uh joe who's uh shirtless in wrigley field right now on his fifth beer probably I mean, right, exactly <laughs> joe may no longer be at wrigley. really he may have been escorted out of the friendly yeah. for being not so friendly do, do they have one of those underground jails at wrigley field i've never been there I, like I in the don't Philadelphia. Think they do but maybe they should now <laughs> Right. right. Now it could be a new idea for the, for the stadium. Uh, but thanks for spending time with me. Uh, it's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I look forward to doing it again. Yeah, great. And thanks everybody for listening. Thanks, Sam, behind the scenes for producing. As always, really appreciate your help with, uh, with everything. And thanks to everybody for listening. If you have any ideas for guests, topics, whatever, reach out to me and Joe, uh, Convergence TR, uh, at Joe Fab on Twitter. Um, we're happy to talk to anybody who wants to um, engage. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.